Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was thinking that we'd start, I ask you questions, and you answer yes or no. Were you the mastermind that cheated the Olympics? Yes. The World Anti-Doping Agency says it's very alarmed by allegations that hundreds of top athletes have recorded suspicious drug tests. They controlled everything about those Olympic Games. They had the lock. They had the key. They ran the bank. The Russian government is fighting accusations that it operates a vast state-sponsored doping program for its international athletes. World-class athletes using top-class drugs. How do they make you feel? Awesome. Don't think it's nothing special. Athletes are not uniquely morally good or morally bad people. I have betrayed your trust. I want you to know that I have been dishonest. There's always going to be a balance between how effective your doping tests are versus what the level of punishment is for failing a test. They're all doping. Every single one of them. Gregory risked his life and is risking his life to do this. Hello and welcome to Science-ish, I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. This week, I'm absolutely pumped. I can feel the extra red blood cells <laughs> coursing through my veins. My muscles are working overdrive. They're, and you're looking very switching. sweaty. <laughs> I am. Sweaty with excitement. Because this week, I'm leading things and we're looking at the superb documentary, Icarus. Have you seen it? Yes, I've seen it, and yes, it is superb. It was you, one of the you, best things I've ever watched, honestly. It's extraordinarily good, even if you're not interested in sport or um, drug tech or anything like that. The documentary maker just has the luckiest break, I think, that any documentary maker will ever have. So he starts off making a uh, a documentary about... So he's a keen cyclist, and he's interested, you know, with all of the you know controversy around doping in, in cycling. It's a massive issue, and EPO, and all this kind of thing. He's like, if... I started taking EPO, if I was drugged up, would I be able to start winning my amateur races? And so he starts doing it, and he sort of comes to the conclusion that no. And if that's the end of the documentary, we're like, well, this is, hasn't really gone anywhere. <laughs> but it's not the end, um, is it? It is absolutely not the end, because he gets in touch with this guy, uh, Grigory Rodchenkov, who is... One of the great characters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, if he was in a movie, like a fiction... You'd you sort would, of you think it's say, a bit much. Come on, it's a no. bit much. Come yeah, on. Yeah. So he was the head of Russia's anti-doping centre. Won't be much of a spoiler to reveal. No, it's not. <laughs> Actually, he was quite big on the old doping. Quite pro-doping, really. Yes, very, very pro-doping. And this whole scandal back in 2015, 2016, unfolds with the documentary maker having exclusive access and insight through this guy. And he's just stumbled into it. He's just, he's stumbled across it and the guy's so open, like remarkably open, given that you are engaged in like this systematic (laughs) cheating. (laughs) Um, He's just, yeah, he just tells him everything. And and like, you've just never seen anything like it. Just watch it, it. just watch it. You have to watch it. And so our... Our big question is just, will we ever 
eliminate doping from sport. And which towering legend is going to help us unpack it? So we've only gone and got Professor Chris Cooper, who's an expert on all things doping. He's an emeritus professor in biochemistry at the University of Essex, and he's also written a book called Run, Swim, Throw, Cheat, The Science Behind Drugs in Sport, and it's got a very nice front cover. It's a man made of drugs. (laughs) So history of doping really means what you mean by doping. The word doping came from a dialect, a South African dialect, meaning giving a stimulating liquor in religious ceremonies. That was taken up in really the 1860s by Dutch swimmers in Amsterdam who took stimulants to help their body. But the um, history of taking molecules to improve sports performance probably goes back to um, what I would call ancient historical times. We don't know the exact details, but certainly in the initial original Olympics, there's evidence that compounds were taken to improve performance. It's not clear exactly what those were, were they special diets and what effects they had. Of course, in one sense, that doesn't mean they were doping because doping has come to mean taking something that's against the rules. And there were no rules that were broken in, as far as we know, in the in the ancient games. I mean, there, were, there was cheating, but not by taking molecules. That wasn't considered cheating. And certainly, really, anti-doping as we know it now, the sort of science of deciding we're going to ban these compounds and we're going to find ways of testing them really came into being. And really the mid-1960s, I guess 1966, 65 were the first tests. When did the word doping, as in a sort of evil thing that athletes do to cheat, happen? That's really contemporaneous with our view that drugs in society is problematic. And that really arose late 1950s, 1960s. You would like to beat doping tests. You would like to start your hormonal program. Yes. Then give sample and prove negative. Yes. Science plays a very intimate and close role in sports performance now. So the sports scientist is almost as important as the coach. Similarly, when it comes to doping and anti-doping, the science is crucial. Although there is a set of rules, and the science really is what determines what are the rules in sport in terms of doping, these are the molecules you shouldn't take because we think they are unhealthy or they are likely to improve performance and or they may be bad against the spirit of sport. So that's partly scientific based on what the rules are and partly based on what image sport wants to to create. But it then needs to use the science to police it and then you have a complicated set of both urine and now blood tests with athletes to see are they playing by the rules. And that is kind of the role of the scientists. I have to say it's not the only tool in the armory of the anti-doping authorities. A lot of it is also related with intelligence and increasingly so. And it's very noticeable that many um, anti-doping bodies on their chairmen of their board, they have ex-policemen rather than scientists. So the police and the investigation powers are as important in anti-doping as the mere scientist. So actually, the idea of doping for better performance in sport goes back maybe thousands of years. And it's only recently that it's been seen as like foul play. Yeah, so so as Professor Chris is saying, we mean cheating when we say doping. Now. Yeah. Back in the day, so the ancient Greeks were they were like chowing down on raw animal testes, <laughs> like <laughs> hearts, oh, uh, yes. just to try and like you know make them make themselves stronger. Some people say they were taking magic mushrooms. Like they're really like they're oh, going for yeah, it. Yeah. And they hated cheating, but this wasn't cheating. Yeah. So, so as long like, as everybody's allowed to do it. 
It's yeah. fine. Which is, to be honest, exactly the situation now as well. Like, you'll do everything that you can in order to try and increase your performance. Yeah. But there are rules saying what the limits are that you can do. And back in the day, those rules were just fairly lax. Yeah. Even in more modern times. So the first modern Olympics, 1896, right through to the 60s, there was no issue with performance-enhancing substances. And some of them you'd think, is that definitely performance-enhancing? <laughs> so in, in 1904, this, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the Olympic marathon in uh, St. Louis, the, the Americans hadn't won the marathon in the previous two Olympics. They'd be St. Louis. They were, they were quite, yeah, yes, fine. Uh, they were quite annoyed and they're very keen to, to win this one. And a guy called Thomas Hicks did win it. It was only, to be fair, only 25 miles. So not, All right, no, not a proper marathon. Um, no. And you're only allowed two stops for water. And he's, he's absolutely knacked. And he's, he's dehydrated. And so his team, um, his, his support crew, say, mm, not water, actually. Uh, brandy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Egg whites. Yeah. Mm. And strychnine. <laughs> <laughs> because in, in small doses, strychnine is a, oh. is a stimulant. But also famously, it's, it's a rat poison. Um, and so <laughs> he's having a terrible time to the point where when he gets to the finish line, He's so fucked that he has to be carried over. Like his his trainer's like carrying him over the line. But he still declared the winner. Is that that's then, still allowed, is it? Yeah, that was still allowed. And and then he obviously collapsed immediately afterwards. Um, he had to be revived by a load of doctors. Like he's in a terrible, terrible state. But he is the winner. But he's the winner. <laughs> and Americans and the, and the Americans were absolutely delighted. They were just genuinely tough. They're like, yeah. Oh, this yeah, is how used, we win a marathon. Yeah, yes. We've used the drugs beautifully. Um, <laughs> this guy is a hero. I just, sort of feel like those were the good old days. Well, they were certainly the days. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, unless you're the athlete involved, obviously. It's like gonzo athletics. Yeah. It? It's like mad, like whatever it takes. I mean, you'd love to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. So this time, I mean, it's not just athletics, is it? It's all sports, presumably, where anything goes. Yeah, pretty much. I and mean, Chris's book, he, he talks about Arsenal and Tottenham, the, the football teams, they're taking loads of amphetamines in the 1920s. Oh, yes. uh, in the 30s, people are using monkey glands as an early form of anabolic oh, steroids. Oh. <laughs> what glands? Well, I don't know which glands. How are they well, getting hold of them. monkey glands? Well, well I, I guess it's not a question of asking the monkey nicely. Oh. I think you're probably... I think the monkey's getting it. Is that footballers still? This was pioneered by my dad's football team, Wolverhampton Wanderers. <laughs> Well done, guys. <laughs> so th- this is amazing. And, and this is all part of generally in society, people are just using stimulants. I mean, famously, yeah. pilots in the sort of, you know, the military pilots were using mm-hmm. loads of stimulants, weren't they? So I guess there's just like a kind of atmosphere where let's see what chemistry can do for us. Yeah, and, and it, was all, it was all kind of fair game. And then in 1960, a Danish cyclist died during a race uh, while taking part. And although people now think it was probably due to heat exhaustion, he was also taking something called uh, Ronicol. They thought it was because of that. And so people were like, ah, maybe there are some side effects to these drugs. Oh, maybe. Who'd have thought? Needs to be a bit careful of. Right. And the first Olympic doping ban was in 1967, was for a member of the Swedish pentathlon team who lost a medal because he had, um, like, just a total legend. He was a bit nervous before. He just had a couple of pints. Just drunk oh, a couple of pints. Like you would. for alcohol. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Calm the nerves. So although at this point people are saying, okay, doping is a thing, not everyone was paying much attention. Mainly 
uh, it has to be said, the East Germans. So oh, famously, famously, yes. the East Germans were right on it. So they, they think like 10,000 East German, none of them ever caught, 10,000 uh, German athletes taking steroids, performance enhancers, and they're getting them to take them when they're kids, like as, yeah, as young as yeah. 12. Well, and you've say, got to start early. Take these tasty vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> these will make you grow big and strong. And they did. Um, and so between... 1956 and 1988. This is a tiny, tiny communist nation. They won like over 200 gold medals, maybe yeah. 200 silver medals. Like they were just cleaning up. All right. So you've got steroids, you've got amphetamines, a bit of alcohol here and there. What else is there on offer? Well, there's all sorts actually. I mean, painkillers is a, is a classic. Oh, yeah. So you just you can't feel your body telling you to stop. Masking agents to conceal the fact that you're doing whatever you're doing. Blood transfusions. Yeah, yeah, of course. Which is a really popular one within cycling. Yeah. Hormones, beta blockers. I mean, there's, there is all sorts. I mean, you know, the, the blood transfusion one is, it's the one where I kind of go, it's clever though, and it doesn't feel yeah, that unnatural. I quite like it. It is quite nice because all you're really doing is you're saying, I'm injecting my own concentrated red blood cells back into my body. It's so sort of my like body oxygenated can- Pre-oxygenated blood. Yeah, it? yeah. Or, or just increasing the oxygen capacity of your blood. Yeah. By, I mean, the thing is that you end up with incredibly thick blood, so it's really dangerous because it's just thick with red blood cells <laughs> carrying around oxygen. <laughs> um, so it's not. It's certainly not so good. So your heart's having a hard time pumping it around. So an incredibly hard time, but that oxygen is getting there. Yeah, yeah. And then people started learning how to test for this stuff, I suppose. Late 60s, early 70s is when we started testing properly. And it's, I mean, it's an arms race with the... The testers are always really one one step behind. Yeah, exactly as you can imagine. So there's just a team of sports scientists and, and and chemists trying to work out ways of getting round the testing or new compounds that won't be detectable by the current tests. It's still going on, presumably. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> we we asked Chris how many athletes he thinks are out there still doping. So the prevalence of doping is not surprisingly is a very hot topic and much argued topic. What's not in doubt is the number of positive doping tests, which is about 0.5 to 1%, depending on depending on the country and the sport. When you do questionnaires, obviously just asking an athlete, are you cheating? is like asking someone, have you broken the rules? And we know the response to athletes, that is to lie. So if you give them an anonymous questionnaire, you still get the same 1% value, but you might get a higher value for recreational drugs. So you might get, as one study where you get a 7% value for recreational drugs use and a 1% value. For, for doping. We're going to turn now to the latest round of allegations against Lance Armstrong just months after federal prosecutors dropped their investigation without bringing charges. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency says they now have proof that the seven-time winner of the Tour de France used performance-enhancing drugs. I've said it for seven years. I've said it for longer than seven years. I have never doped. Is there any stopping Lance Armstrong in this Tour de France? And the answer is no, Now, a number of more recent surveys, especially those taken in the World Championships, World Athletics Championships, quite controversial ones, have got much higher numbers in the 20 to 30% of people saying they've ever used it. So it's a little bit different. Remember, the 1% is the number of positive tests and the 20 is lifetime use. And arguably, people could be talking about historical events. They're still not saying they're taking them at that moment in time. So to say the the number is somewhere between 1% and 30%, of course, is a very large margin of error. And it's clearly dependent on sports. And some sports where there is either a history of drug use or there are obvious 
drugs that can improve performance have a higher prevalence of, of doping, at least in these methods that we use to detect it. Did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. Was one of those banned substances EPO? Yes. Did you ever blood dope or use blood transfusions to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. Did you ever use any other banned substances like testosterone, uh, cortisone, or human growth hormone? Yes. For example, in, in football or soccer, if you're in America, it's not obvious exactly what you would use to, to improve performance, and most of the tests, at least that we can um, discover, and they've been notified, tend to be for recreational drug use rather than for performance enhancing drug use, at least in a sort of the more skilled-based sports where it's hard to see how a drug would necessarily have an improvement. Whereas in a strength-based sport, shot-putting, or in a endurance-based sport like long-distance cycling, there's a more obvious benefit from taking anabolic steroids in a shot-put or taking a blood transfusion or erythropoietin or EPO in a, in a, in a cycling, cycling race. In your opinion, was it humanly possible to win the Tour de France without doping seven times in a row? Not in my opinion. So when did you first start doping? All right, so it sounds like we just can't know how many people are doping. So you're doing blood and urine tests. But they're, they're just telling you the people that you're catching. Yeah. That's, that's the problem. So although Chris is talking about sort of 20 to 30% when you talk about historical usage, there was a, a really controversial study that was held back. Like it was done uh, nearly 10 years ago, I think, but held back from publication for ages, done at, um, at athletics competitions. And they found 57% of competitors anonymously admitted to doping in the, in the previous 12 months. 57%. But then the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, are saying 1% to 2%. That's what they're identifying through blood and urine tests. So, like just, so yeah. they're suppressing that, what, because they're not very good at detecting Well, not very on. good at catching people. Also, it doesn't paint the sport in a very good light. And that's but, the most important thing. Well, I've got to say, if you look at, for example, in, uh, in Icarus, yeah. The, the Russian ban has already been lifted two years later. <laughs> yeah, no. And the, the Russians haven't admitted to anything. No. Haven't apologized. It's fine, guys. Come on back. Back you come, guys. I worked with Gregory over about six months to compile a record of what happened in Russia. This is the spreadsheet of every single athlete that was on the state-mandated protocol what every single athlete was taking in London, including their sample numbers in collection. When Christian goes back and tests these samples correctly, she will basically find them all positive. So what, uh, what else can you do? You can measure, you can monitor blood and urine. What other things? Yeah, so blood and urine, you just use sort of mass spectrometry. Of course you do. So the molecules you're looking for have a kind of unique fingerprint, mass, shape, whatever. So steroids and stuff are quite easy to pick out. Uh, from that but some of the doping byproducts are just too small and so you won't be able to get them like that and and so one innovation is this thing called a biological passport and so what you're looking for rather than the the actual substances or the method by which you're achieving the improvement you are looking for the improvements the effects on your Uh, body okay forget the actual drug like what has it caused i think it's quite good it's sort of an electronic document about the uh, an athlete with certain sort of biological markers and then you're looking for 
variation yeah. within that that is suspicious. And and I think that the the limits that they're setting it to is like ninety nine point nine percent. So if your marker appears outside of that boundary, yeah, then there's only a one in a thousand chance that you would arrive at that naturally. So this would be something like your VO2 max. Yes, exactly. Oh, it's gone up up 10% in the last three months. Yes, right. I mean, I I don't know about the actual numbers, but that sort of thing, like suspicious sort of improvements or changes that can't really be accounted for naturally. And you also look at um, like percentage of young red blood cells. Yeah. So that can be a really good marker for uh, blood transfusions. Because if you've got fewer young red blood cells, it means that you've probably had, or a lower percentage, you've had a transfusion of older red blood cells because they would have just been sitting there and getting older in a fridge. Yeah. And yeah. then put back in. And therefore, oh, your I percentage go- yeah. of new blood cells goes down. Yeah. And you can kind of, and you can track that. Yeah. You look at the athlete's sort of normal physiology and then your, you, your eye is out for anomalies. Right. But there's still, we're still only catching 1%. So that suggests that in the arms race, the people doping are winning in terms of making themselves undetectable. Yeah, because people are really good at it. And there's a lot of money and prestige riding on being being the best in all of these sports. If you blood dope carefully enough, yeah. so if you get your transfusions right and use your EPO correctly and all this kind of stuff, then you can remain un- undetected by the biological passport tests, by all of the other existing tests. If you microdose, so if you just take very, very small amounts over a long period yeah. of time, that can be incredibly hard to detect. And still um, works. And, and still works, yeah. yeah. So the dopers are winning, basically. The, I, I would say that the dopers are definitely winning currently, yeah. So you need clean urines. I need the clean urines for each candidate. So every single Russian athlete under the state-sponsored doping, you had clean samples of their urine being held. Yes. And it made me think even more watching Icarus. You look at how sophisticated and elaborate that system for those uh, for those <laughs> Russians to cheat yeah, was. Yeah. And go, this That's is incredible. the lengths they're going to. Yeah. It's not hard to imagine other nations, other groups going to those lengths. So presumably we asked Chris what we're going to do about all of this. Uh, yeah, we did, yeah. I often get asked whether you can uh, completely remove doping. And my answer is always the same. Can you completely remove cheating in silent sport? Can you stop a footballer trying to dive to get a, get a benefit? Doping are a set of rules and there are benefits in breaking the rules. And there's always going to be a balance between how effective your doping tests are versus what the level of punishment is for failing a test. But if there's a big enough reward, some people will always try and cheat. So doping is nothing special. Athletes are not uniquely morally good or morally bad people. They're just people given choices in society in the same way as, as, as we all are. And it's a very straightforward analogy to crime in society. So um, if you think you can stop doping, well, then go away and stop crime in society, which is actually a much more important thing, thing to stop. Anti-doping in sports has reached hysteria and the careers of athletes are being ended by unelected bureaucrats wielding zero tolerance policies. Let the woman play tennis. Think about these federations and associations governing these sports. They say they want the sport to be preeminent. They want to have these guys and gals hitting records. 
Well, why not give them a little boost? Other people argue, well, let's just change the rules. And of course, anti-doping and doping is just a set of rules. So why not make everything legitimate? That would stop doping because there'd be no rules. So it would be like back where we were in the 1800s, early 1900s. The complete removal, um, which is advocated by a number of people, let's make them perform the best they can. Let's see what the best 100 metres is and only be limited by the health of the athlete. We'll assume the doctors will, will, will deal with that. The problem I have with that is that it sort of might work with um, male sport, but with female and certainly elite female sport, I think there's no way to have a anything goes rule and still have what we would view as normal, in inverted commas, female elite sport, because the benefits of taking anabolic steroids, testosterone, other artificial steroids is so strong. And yet that performance enhancement comes with health problems. We know that from um, what happened in in East Germany, especially during development, when you can make a big change, would have an adverse health benefit. And the sport would, would, in inverted commas, look different. I think if you've got elite sport, you've got these problems. There's no way way around it. I didn't know what the side effects were. I didn't know if I took these little pills, this would happen to me. I had um, little or no menstrual um, cycle. I had um, a large libido, those sorts of things. If you look at me 10 years ago or during that time, I was not a woman. He showed me the pills. They were wrapped in silver foil. And he told me they were supplements, that everybody took them. There was nothing to worry about and that I needed them. This former Olympic athlete has had 13 operations and lives in constant pain. Her injuries are typical of many doped female athletes bodies cannot support the stresses from the steroid-assisted training. So I think you have to have some rules. And as soon as you have to have some rules, you have to police them. Whether you end up with the arms race where you get this horrendously complicated system, I don't know. But certainly given the rewards and the risks we've got, and we've certainly seen with the, you know, the, the effect of what happened with Russia, the rewards can be so large that even states can get involved, that it's difficult to see it ever ending. But as I say, we're never going to remove crime in society and we don't think that. So therefore, we shouldn't perhaps be so idealistic and think we're going to remove cheating in sport. If we think of doping as being cheating and we can deal with that, that seems to be the way the way forward. But actually, there are no black and white areas even in sport. You know, Who runs fastest is, is a black and white area in that race, but how they get there may be trickier to avoid grey areas. When it comes to the doping, would you do it again? You know, if I was racing in 2015, no, I wouldn't do it again. If you take me back to 1995, when it was completely and totally pervasive, probably do it again. So do we carry on with the status quo or do we, you know, increase punishments? Do we make it not worth their while to, you know, to cheat? What we define as doping is quite arbitrary. We won't allow blood transfusions, but we will allow altitude chambers. So not your training altitude, but you're training in a chamber that simulates a low oxygen environment that therefore stimulates your production of red blood cells and has the same effect. And you would say, well, that's an artificial way of doing it. Yeah. 
but we're okay with that. But we don't want you to sort of take blood out of yourself and then re-inject it. And I, I don't know necessarily why we allow that and, and not the other. But you don't think that we should return to the kind of strychnine and brandy, everything's So fine. just accept that we're never going to be able to catch all these people doping, therefore yeah. just have a free-for-all. Anything goes. I think, that, I think it's, the, it's the health issue that is the, the main but problem. But that's the risk people can decide for themselves, but, surely. But, but to kind of sanction it, though, which is what you would be doing, even tacitly, to say, yeah, go on, do whatever you can. And particularly, exactly as Chris says, for female athletes can be incredibly damaging, like incredibly damaging. And I don't think you want to be in a situation where you're saying, yeah, that is okay because you're going to give a great race. But also the thing that we have to think about is that now we're moving into an era where genetic enhancement is possible. Oh, and that is, yes. Like, I mean, it's just so spicy. So um, the Chinese could breed genetically engineered babies that are Olympics bound. Yeah, and not easy to detect, I don't think. Well, no, because it's... At, at all. Absolutely. The, in you the can more, have that idea for free, China? Yeah, I think they might already have had that idea. I mean, certainly, there's some quite pragmatic stuff from the Chinese in terms of breeding basketball players. Yeah, yeah. Where they're like, ah, tall lady. <laughs> mm, you're going to reproduce with tall man. <laughs> um, all right, so let's wrap this up. Will we ever eliminate doping from sport? No. I really, I really don't think we will. And I don't think we'll have a situation where we just say, actually, it's a free-for-all, do whatever you like. I think the incentives will always be there to enhance your performance. Well, because the prize money and is to put, big. Yeah, and, and, to, and to push the limits uh, as to what you're allowed to do. And I think that you can probably justify it to yourself because it feels a bit arbitrary. And everybody what? else is pushing the limits as well. So if you don't do it, you yeah. know, you're just going to lose out. Well, that's what loads of sprinters say. They're just like, well, look, what, how, am I, how am I supposed to be a, a clean athlete when I know that X, Y, and Z yeah. are, 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 are drugging up on, on these things? Because being a clean athlete is effectively ruling yourself out. Well, I mean, you, you kind of you hope that it isn't, but you suspect that it might be. Yeah. And who's willing to take the risk when that's your career? And yeah. you know, by the time you're sort of 28, your yeah, career's short, over anyway. I think it's a short career. For me, it really comes down to this idea of we, we fetishize the concept of a pure, natural sport. You're this one person, they've got this natural ability and they've trained really hard and they've won. And we, we, we love that. But it's, it's not how it's, it is. It's not how it is. Like wh- whether they're they're in inverted commas clean or not, they're still taking lots of like anything that they can take that will that will help. So you know, oh yeah, I'm I'm eating lots of whey protein, so I get more I, I get more muscly. Well, you could kind of go, well, that's you're not getting that from sort of regular food, right? Yeah, um, and that's you know, you and you're adding certain like special amino acids to that so that yeah. you promote more muscle growth and what have you. Yeah. Also, if we'd eliminate doping from sport, we wouldn't get characters like that Russian guy. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> they're a real shame. <laughs> <Miss Adam. laughs> Golden individuals like him. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Eli Block. Sound designed by Eli Block. Special thanks to Professor Chris Cooper. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you very much. It does, it does help. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. In my Wednesday night football game, there's a guy who always, before the start of the game, smokes a spliff on the side of the pitch. 
And I said to him, How, does that really help you? He said, oh, oh, I can't play without it. I have to have it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's many professional athletes who are taking that route. No, no, I don't understand it. I mean, he's good and he's quick. He's really quick. Is he? Yeah. Imagine how quick he'd be without the well, split. Well, that's, that's what I can't help thinking. But he said, no, it sort of, you know, enables him to get up and keep running, apparently. Yeah, I'd just pull a whitey, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't agree with me at all. 